You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, friends. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee. Glad to be speaking with you on this post-Thanksgiving week. Thanksgiving is done. Hopefully, you're not done giving thanks. Hopefully, you are done with Thanksgiving leftovers. If not, it's probably time for them to go, unless it's pie. Pie is like love. Pie lasts forever. So if there's still pie in your fridge, go ahead. That's still good. But the potato salad, no, it's it's time for that to be released into its destiny. It's got to go. It's got to go. What a crazy start to yesterday morning. It's Monday as I'm recording this. It's Sunday morning, I get to the building that we use for our Sunday morning worship service. And when I get there, I stick my key in the door and nothing happens. I mean, it just doesn't budge. And it wasn't one of those kind of things where the key is sticky. It's like instantly I knew, oh, oh, they've rekeyed the locks somehow. So I reached out and they brought me a key right away. It was not a big deal. But in that moment of what am I going to do, I look through the window that runs parallel to the door. There's a door and just to the right, there's a, a tall, narrow window. And on the inside of that window, there's a little ledge. And as I'm trying to figure out how to get in, I haven't realized yet that they've rekeyed the locks. All I know is I can't get my key to work. I look in and I see on the inside of the window ledge a squirrel looking at me. He's inside the building. I'm outside the building. I have a key. I can't get in. I don't know how he got in. I don't know if he changed the locks. All I could think of was that movie Olympus Has Fallen where the terrorists take the White House. And it was like the little squirrel terrorists had taken the building. And I was waiting for them to text me a list of their demands, you know, a case of peanut butter. and I don't know. Who knows? Whatever squirrels would ask for if they had the foresight to text. Anyway, we dove into part seven of our series on the letters of Revelation, which will be eight parts. Double are all done because we did a bit of an intro at the beginning. And uh, it was a great week. It was just fun to be together. Lots going on at the bridge this week. Uh, if you're missing stuff, if you're going, hey, what's going on at the bridge that I don't know about? Go to thebridgekc.church and sign up for the weekly email. Once you get the weekly email, you know what's going on. You would know about women's prayer for the city on Thursday at 8.30 a.m. You would know about the young adult worship night on Friday night. You would know about the women's journaling workshop on Saturday. You would know all this stuff. Sign up for the email, thebridgekc.church. It's at the bottom of the page. You can't miss it, really. Here we go from Sunday morning at the bridge. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation 3. Welcome to week 7 of my three-week series on the letters of Revelation. This is the dumbest thing I do on a consistent basis. do a lot of dumb things, but a consistent basis. I think series are going to be shorter than they are. They never are. Nobody cares, but I just feel weird about it. So week 7 of our three-week series. Uh, I one time, I, I think I went, went uh, like 18 weeks in in James that I thought was going to be five. So, uh, Week seven of our series in Revelation. If you're diving into this series late, let me encourage you, go back to the beginning. Uh, there's not going to be a quiz on the whole thing, but this first, the first message uh, kind of lines out these letters as to why in a, in a unique way, and I think was, was uh, important for you. So if you jumped in the middle, uh, go back to the beginning, at least catch the first one. It'll help you considerably. One thing that we talked about that first week 
about the letters of Revelation is that in order to find the future of the church, we have to find ourselves in these letters. In order to figure out where we are going, not just we as a congregation, but I mean the church as a whole, we've got to look at these letters because there is the good and the bad written very clearly in these letters, and there are things that are still true about the church. They are foundational documents that describe where the church is going right and where the church is going wrong. Now, almost nobody documents where the church goes right. It's, it's like an unpublished area, okay? It's not spoken of. It happens all the time, but it's rare that it is publicly mentioned. A vast majority of the news or coverage that you see of the church is negative. How many of you, when you hear a news story that starts out a local church or a local pastor, you cringe? You brace yourself, and the first thing you thought is, please not mine. Please not mine. Okay, it's not mine. Now I still feel, you know, it's because it's hardly ever good news about the church. There was a time when there was almost no news about the church. It was almost like there was a, a gag order on the press. They just didn't talk much about the church at all. Uh, some events in the 90s with some, fall, uh, some falls of some prominent ministers changed all that. But the pendulum, like pendulums do, tended to, tended to swing and swung so far to the other direction that now it's pretty much just all bad news. So this morning, and it's fitting, I think we do this on Thanksgiving weekend, we're going to launch into a message about some really good news about a church. And it's good news that CNN doesn't share, Fox doesn't share, none of the news outlets shares. It's actually told to us by the one who embodies good news. It's by the one who is good news. And he says, I look at this church, and there is good about this church that I want to draw attention to. We're going to draw attention to the letter to the church in Philadelphia. Now, this should go without saying, but I have sat where you're sitting, and I've drifted in and out of consciousness during messages, so just let me clarify, this is not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, okay? This is another Philadelphia. There are times people only hear bits and pieces, and you would be surprised what people walk away from messages with. I met somebody in their late 20s who had grown up saying the creeds of the church and were in their late 20s before it dawned on them they had been wrong their entire life. They thought Jesus had been killed in a, in a plane wreck because they said the creed that talked about him suffering under Pontius Pilate. No joke. And as a kid, they associated that with a plane wreck and one day they it wasn't a plane wreck. And they're like, no, no. So I'm just making it very clear this is not Philadelphia Pennsylvania. Okay, this is not Rocky running up the stairs. This is not the Liberty Bell. This is not the home of Will Smith where he was born and raised. Yeah, we're not going to go there. Okay. Caught some of you didn't. But when you think of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, what do you think about? What? Love. Why? City of brotherly love, which they ripped off from Philadelphia in the Bible. It's true. That's where that really came from. 250 years before this passage is written, King Eumenes of Pergamum, which talked about that city earlier, King Eumenes decided to build another city 80 miles to the southeast. And he named it after his brother, whose nickname was Philadelphos, or the one who loves his brother. Philadelphia was unique in that most ancient cities sprung up where there was water, 
and there was a highway, and there were people already, and then it just kind of happened organically. Philadelphia was a planned city. They picked a spot and said, we're going to send resources there. We're going to send people, we're going to send money, we're going to send livestock, and we're going to build a city there. It was, it was planned, not in layout, but in purpose. Now, just for orientation, if we take a look at the map for a second, maybe we already did, you can see from Pergamon up north, it's about 80 miles southeast, and he built it there with great purpose. Writer William Barclay said Philadelphia had been built with the deliberate intention that it might become a missionary city. Now, we say missionary. What on earth was a pagan king so enthused about exporting that he would build a city 90 miles to the southeast? King Eumenes of Pergamum looked to the east and he saw wild country that was populated entirely by barbarians. By his term, barbarians was anyone who was not Greek. And he said, we need to expand Greek thought, Greek culture, the Greek language, so we're going to put a city there, and those who live there will almost be like missionaries of what it means to be Greek. Now, before I read the text, it sounds like preposterously colonial, you know, that you would export your culture and that you would put a city there to make them more like you. The truth is the Lord is searching the landscape for groups of people who believe about the gospel what this king believed about Greek culture. The Lord is looking for people who believe the gospel is so valuable that it's worth exporting. For people that believe the gospel is so valuable that it is the answer to the world's problems who really believe that the gospel is so valuable that every person on earth should get a chance to know what it means. This king said the Greek language will change the world. We're going to send people. Now the church looks around and says, no, the, the gospel changed. We're going to send people. We're going to expand, and we're going to be a missionary city of our own. So the letter starts in Revelation 3, chapter 7. I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus introduces himself, as he does at the beginning of all these letters. And he says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and what no one opens. Now, something we've not addressed in the earlier, we've talked about five of these other letters, we've never talked about who this angel is. At the beginning of every letter, to the angel of Ephesus, to the angel of Thyatira, to the angel of Pergamum, to the angel of Philadelphia. The word angel there is angelos, which can be interpreted as messenger, does not have to be what we think of as a spiritual being. So it may have been an angel. It may be that each city had an angel watching over it. But in all likelihood, it was an individual who came to visit and saw John there on the island of Patmos, and he issued the letters to that. The, uh, John the Baptist was referred to as an angelos in Matthew 11.10. This is, behold, I will send my messenger. It's not talking about an angel there. It's talking about a, a human being. The chances that John delivered those physical letters to an angel, and then an angel took it to Thyatira or any of these cities, and then an angel read it to all the people in the city, and that isn't mentioned anywhere in history, is unlikely. So we tend to think that they are writing to an individual. We say to the angel, but to the messenger or an individual. And here as Jesus introduces himself to the church of Philadelphia, he says this about himself. He says, the words of the Holy One, the true one, 
who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. Now keep in mind, across the earth, everywhere that faith was expanding, they were wrestling with this question. Everywhere believers went, they were wrestling with the idea of who really is Jesus? Who on earth was this man that is turning the world upside down? And to confuse things, there were freelance rabbis throughout the Judeo world. Because remember, all it took to be a rabbi was for another rabbi to say you were a rabbi. Okay? There was no strict formal qualifications for rabbis. Now, most of them went through deep schooling, but you had all of these little fringe rabbis everywhere, so it wasn't unusual for a rabbi to have unusual teaching. Usually it came with years of case study, but in some cases it didn't. Add to the fact that the followers of Jesus were not the only small group wandering the wilderness claiming to have found answers about God. So there were these other messianic, quotation mark, characters out there floating around. Jesus introduces himself in this way, and he validates himself by drawing on themes from the Old Testament that all of the Hebrew-speaking people would know and many of the learned Greeks would know as well. For the letters of Jesus and the story of Jesus to have authority, they needed to come from God the Father, not just from some other rabbi that said, yeah, he's a good teacher. There's a description of the presence of God in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. And it's so distinct. Isaiah has this encounter with the Lord, and it's so distinct that he dates it in the storyline. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And the one he called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So when Jesus says, write this to the angel, these are the words of the Holy One, those with understanding would go, oh, this, this is not an earthly rabbi. He comes from the very throne room of God. Jesus said he was born with a purpose of bearing witness to the truth. It was so distinct that when he stood before Pilate, Pilate even said, what is truth? It's like, who are you? that you say this. He says, no, no, I am the Holy One. I come from the very presence of God. Now, when he says, I am the truth, there are two shades of meaning of truth. Truth can mean true and not a lie, right? Something is true, it's not a lie. For instance, north and south are in different spots on the map. It's just true. Even if you're a flat earther, you don't put north and south in the same spot. But true can also mean a little bit of a different thing. It can mean it is true and not fake. It is the real thing. It's the genuine article. That's the sense he's using it here. I am true. I am real. Search me any way you want. I'm the real thing. And then in his introduction, he drops one more reference to Isaiah's text, revealing that he really is come from God. He isn't just a hand-me-down rabbi from somewhere. He says, who I am the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. Now, this is another call back to Isaiah again, where Isaiah is prophesying about the one who will come, but he's doing it through a storyline about a man named Eliakim. Eliakim was being made the steward to the king, and he says in Isaiah 22, 22, re referring to Eliakim, but also to Jesus, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. 
He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. In Bible times, the king would give an oversized key. You know how when you see somebody in, in, get a key to the city and it's like this big? They would give them this oversized key. It was a sign of authority, and they could act as the one who had all the authority, and there was no counteracting it. Anywhere the king could get you, the steward could get you. Any opportunity that the king could give you, the steward could give you. Any door that he could keep you from, the steward could keep you from. Jesus said, I've got that key. And I'm going to tell you something, so please listen. That's what authority does. It extends the will of the one who has authority. And during his earthly ministry, even prior to raising the dead, it was his authority that caught people's eye. There's a story in Mark 1 where he is casting out demons and he's teaching Okay, And what shocks the people isn't that he's casting out demons. And it isn't even the words that he's saying. They literally say in their response to him in Mark 1, look, a new teaching with authority. They say, look, he's, we've heard new teachings before. We had actually seen demons cast it out. There was, a, there was a Hebraic way of doing that. But he's teaching with authority. The most flowery profound speech apart from authority means nothing c-span okay you ever watch c-span when you're trying to sleep or something you know i mean you, you watch this and there are these guys and these are guys with some measure of authority standing in front of the the house or or the senate you know if the camera ever pans back you realize there's nobody there but they're standing, and these are, are senators and congressmen, and they're talking about what they want to do. And if you've followed politics at all, you watch that and you go, there's not a snowball chance that guy's going to be able to do that. There's no way he's going to do that. There are, you know, 49 other senators that are going to argue. There's this, there's this. But they're making decrees, but they really don't have the authority. And what comes out at the end is a shadow of what they promised, right? The spending bill is going to be this, and it's this. We're going to do this, and it's this. It's just, it's the way of politics. Lots of speech, very little authority. The words don't mean anything. One of the favorite expressions of my mentor, Steve Shogren, would come out when meetings had gone too long. And by Steve's estimate, that was about 12 minutes. When the meetings had gone too long, and this is how you knew the meeting was over, Steve would say something like, Talk doesn't cook rice. It's like, what, what do you mean? It means we can talk all day long. Nothing's going to happen here. Authority. Authority cooks rice. Authority gets things done, but talk doesn't. Jesus is saying here, I'm holy. I'm really from God. I'm real. I'm the real deal. I'm not a fake. And I have authority. And if I say a door is open for you, by God, the door is open. If I say the door is closed, beat on it all you want. That door is not going to open for you. And either way, whether the doors open or they close, we are under the protection of God. There are doors the Lord has shut for you, and you still have the bruise on your forehead because you ran into that thing at 900 miles an hour and backed up and took another run at it. And he said, no, that's not the path I've got for you. There are other doors that have opened for you that you almost couldn't have resisted. And you walked through them because he invited you. The authority of Jesus and your relationship to it will chart the course of your life. Those are two different things. His authority and how you 
participate with it will chart the course of your life. Young people, I'm telling you, the biggest question in the forefront of your mind should be what doors are you opening and what doors are you shutting, Lord? Because I don't want to run hard into doors that you're shutting and I don't want to miss an open door. Those of you who are later in life, doors still open and doors still close, ask him, how are you leading me? Because I don't want to press on a door that's never going to open if it's not of you. And I don't want to wander into a room that really you didn't have for me. I don't care how successful you have been by the measure of the world, you're still under his authority. I don't care how much you feel like a failure, you're still under his authority. You will have more peace and more breakthrough in your life once you figure out how to partner with that authority rather than fight against it. Writing to Philadelphia, Jesus declares, I'm holy, I am true, I hold the keys to doors that will open that nobody else can open. I can shut things that nobody else can shut. And then he starts into the letter in verse 8, and it says four words, I know your works. Now, we have heard this before in other letters. I have known your works. And it's usually the sign that Jesus is getting ready to open up a can of whoop bottle. Isn't it? Like when he says, I know, you're like, oh, he knows. To most people, Jesus knows is not good news. Last week, we read how he told Sardis, I know your works. You've got a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. And we've come to affiliate Jesus watching and Jesus knowing with Jesus being permanently irritated with us. That's not what he's saying here. In this case, he says to Philadelphia, I know your works. And then he goes on to speak a letter of encouragement to them. He gives them no correction. There's no point in a letter to Philadelphia. He's like, this is one thing. Does it mean they were perfect? No. doesn't mean they were perfect. But he was so overwhelmed with what he saw and what he knew about them, he actually does not correct them in the slightest. He makes promises and he prophesies a future. Remember, a holy and a true man with great authority, what Jesus prophesies, he promises. And all of what he promises to them is in context, in context of knowing their works, and he loves what he sees. We can say this in our entire lives, and some of us never actually believe it. Believe it. God is not inherently angry. He is actually not inherently angry at you. He sees things in your life that he is pleased with. Some of you are in the process of breaking historical patterns of sin that your parents never broke off. We're saying, we did not have a family like that, but we're going to be a family like that. And he sees that. He knows that. He loves that. Some of you are sharing the love of Jesus with coworkers in a profound way. He sees that. He knows that. He loves that. Some of you are up to your eyeballs in children, and it is the, like the work of your life just to make sure everybody has grilled cheese. But you're doing it with a happy heart unto the Lord, and he knows that, and he sees that. Some of you are taking care of aging parents. You never saw this coming. And the Lord sees it. Our friend Sean Henry, Jackmans know the Henrys, they're next-door neighbors for years. Sean told us when we started adopting, he said, Randy, you know there's going to have to come at some point with, with extended life. It's going to become a corresponding adoption movement of the elderly because those lives are precious. And some of you are in that process of caring for your... He sees that. He loves that. 
Don't think of the watchful eye of Jesus as something that's always getting ready to smack you down. There are things that you are doing that even your spouse doesn't know, but, even, but the watchful eye of Jesus does, and he sees the faithfulness, he sees the good decisions, and he's saying, I know. And the fact that you're doing them and you're faithful touches the heart of the most authoritative man in the universe. From there, the man who knows announces what is coming for the Church of Philadelphia. And because these letters are all finished with the same thing, which is, let he who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We're going to take some of these promises for our own, okay? This, this is not appropriation. He wrote this to all of us. He promises three things to them. And there are not slides for these, so if you're taking notes, just write these down. He promises three things. Opportunity, strength, and faithfulness. Opportunity, strength, and faithfulness. Starts out in verse 8. He continues on after he tells them, I know. He says, I know. Then he says, behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Remember, he just told them he has all authority from God. Then he says he's going to put that authority to work. He's going to open a door for them that nobody else could possibly open and nobody can shut. Repeatedly in the New Testament, open doors speak of ministry opportunities and an opportunity to expand the kingdom so that more people could know Jesus. Over and over again, the Lord would open a door and people would walk through and the kingdom would expand. We love the idea of Jesus opening doors to us, but we've got a bit of a preconceived idea of what those doors should be and what they mean. In our mind, Jesus opening doors for us sounds more like platform and more visibility for us. We think of Jesus opening doors as a promotion at work, which it could be, or a greater ministry opportunity or some opportunity to get noticed. And we think, when I walk through that door, I'm finally going to get recognized. We're thinking of Jesus less as a Lord and Savior and more as a lucky charm. When Jesus opens doors that nobody can shut, they often look very different than what we would expect. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas are worshiping in prison and the doors pop open. Now, if you're worshiping in prison and the doors pop open, what meaneth this? You know, I mean, that's your first thought, right? What do we do now? You would think this is the opportunity of opportunities to escape, but rather than leverage that for escape, they see it as an opportunity to share the gospel with the jailer and his family, and they all come to know Jesus, and they're all baptized, and Paul and Silas spend another night in captivity. We don't know if they're under house arrest at the jailer's house. We don't know if, you know, after the baptisms, we're like, oh, sorry, got to take you back. Whatever the case, they're not released until the next day. We think open doors means the great opportunity for us. No, open doors are for the spread of the kingdom. Later, Paul's in prison again. Paul spent a lot of time in prison, by the way. And he asks for doors to open. But this time, he's not even talking about his jail cell. He's talking about ministry to those that he is imprisoned with, Colossians 4.3. At the same time, pray for us, that God may open a door for the word to declare the mysteries of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. He's like, as long as I'm locked up, would you pray that the Lord would open doors that I'm not in here for nothing? Doors would be opened so the gospel could be shared. In Paul's mind, the one who opened the doors that no man could shut would open the hearts of men and women around him. 
It's not the opportunity that most people would pray for. Most people would say, Lord, if you can open doors, can you open the one that's got me in prison? He said, no, no, open doors of people's hearts that I could actually share the gospel no matter where I am. That may be why we don't see as many open doors as we wish we would. It's not that they're not there. It's we're looking for something entirely different. We're like, oh, Lord, would you open a door? He's like, I opened four of them. It's going to take a cattle prod to get you through one of these doors. We make the lives of the apostles just really mystical, but all through ministry, Paul was guided as much by open doors as he was by prophetic words. Where he went and what he did was open as much by, oh, just there was a door open, so he did it. 1 Corinthians 16, 8. He's trying to figure out where he goes, what he does. But he says, I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has been opened to me. And there are many adversaries. He's like, oh yeah, by the way, I'm getting beaten from pillar to post over here. But some really good opportunities for ministry. It's an open door. I'm going to walk through it. It would have been easier to assume that those adversaries were the clue that ministry is over. Paul said, no, I've seen an opportunity here. I'm going to minister. I'm going to walk through this door for the gospel. When God opens doors, adversaries pale in comparison to opportunity. What came out of that church at Ephesus, that he stayed there because there was an open door, even in the middle of adversaries, what came out of that was a revival so intense that the magicians of the city burned their books of spells. What came out of that city was a congregation that melded together the Jew and the Greek so well that Paul wrote to them and said, it's like you, it's like you invented a new man. It's like a whole new thing coming out of this because Paul saw an open door for opportunity. You will walk in predetermined blessing if you watched for the doors that he opens and you walk through them. He opens them for a purpose. And this is the part that we miss. The door that he's opening is probably nearest the wall that we're near. Charles Spurgeon had a man visit him in his office one time and said, Pastor, I really believe the Lord is calling me to share the gospel. What do I do? And he said, well, what do you do now? He said, I'm a railroad engineer. He said, is the guy who shovels coal for the, for the train, is he a believer? The man said, no. He said, go back to work and start there. That's where the open door is. But the Lord will open that door and nobody can shut it. Bridge family, we are surrounded by open doors. And we are invited to influence and to minister and opportunities are everywhere. You add to that the confidence that, to know that it was God who opened the door and no one can shut it. Look for those doors when we can't go wrong. He said, I'm promising you open doors. Then he recognizes and encourages them about the strength that they have. Now, it's a little bit hard to, to read when it's translated into English. It, it comes off a little odd. But the scripture says, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word. Sounds like a backhanded compliment, doesn't it? Kind of like, eh, you got a little power. You know, it's like, you know, your aunt saying, well, you've got a good personality. That's just, it's a, it's a way of saying something, but that actually is not accurate. In the original language, it's actually much more of a, of a compliment. Because the world has no power. It's got no power to break addictions, no power to say no to sin, no power to even restrain themselves. Humanity has very little power to make significant life change. And he says, you've, you've actually got a little power. 
I've been listening to a, a podcast that underscores how hopeless people are without Jesus. Anthony Hathaway was an engineer who was employed for, with Boeing for 20 years, designing the galleys of jets. Guy had a, a real career, had a family, had a, had a good job, and he went from being an engineer at Boeing to being an Oxycontin addict, to being a heroin addict, to robbing 30 banks in the Seattle area inside of a year. Who'd have thought you could rob 30 banks? He was, it was become such a job for him that he robbed some of them twice. Gets arrested, goes to jail, and you could, the audio they have is of the police officer interviewing him, and they said, when was the last time you worked? He's like, about a year ago. They said, what did you do? I was an engineer for Boeing, and you can hear the voice of the police officer go, really? Like, you just, he just couldn't. He couldn't fathom that this guy had no power to pull the brakes on this train wreck. The world has no power to pull the, pull the brakes on things. And Jesus tells them, you got a little power. And what sounds like criticism in English is actually an encouragement in the original language. A little power in the spirit realm is outstanding. Because it's not your power anyway. It's like a little faith. You know what a little faith can do? Matthew 17, 5 and 6, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord says, if you had faith, it's like, well, if you had any, if you had as much as a mustard seed, you could say to this tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would. He's teaching him here and says, if you had a little faith, 60 years later, he's telling the church of Philadelphia, you've got a little power. There's a little something going on with you. And power, like faith, has an exponential effect. That little bit of stuff has given them the strength to stay faithful to his word. That little bit of power that you know is enough when the Lord breathes on it. Some of you are going, I'm weak, but I'm not dead. I got a little bit. The last two years have not killed me. Maybe I redefined dead a little bit, but like I'm still ticking. He's looking down, he goes, that little spark you have? That little whatever that gathers people in a little whatever, that little thing that makes you go, I want to come together with these people because we're building a family, that little bit of thing that you have held on to when everything else went haywire, think of the things that two years ago you thought would never change. The only thing that hadn't changed in two years is your oil. <laughs> you know, it's like there's, everything else has gone out the window. And he says, no, but even through this, you've got a little bit. Like, there, there's life on it. You read the word, and you resonate with it. I'm still moving in your life. There is power on your life. He recognizes it. And then he recognizes one more thing. He said, I'm opening doors for you. You have a little bit of power, and you haven't denied my name. You have not backed off on your commitment to me, in spite of the fact that your whole hamster cage has been turned upside down and shaken. You haven't denied my name. When you have younger kids, there's a phrase you hear a hundred times a day. It's, uh, hey, Dad, look at this. Hey, Mom, look what I can do. And when they're little, it's usually something like, you know, you shut the lawnmower off and you walk around the corner of the backyard and they're going down the slide and they've rigged up a trash bag like a parachute as they come off the slide that slows them from one mile an hour to like 0.8 miles an hour. All right? <sighs> That's nice. Okay, as a parent, you have to like generate enthusiasm for what they just did, right? It's like, okay, that's nice. And it's about 30 seconds before it's like, hey, Dad, come look at it. It's just one thing after another. 
But at some point, as they get older, they pick up skills or they gain access to information, and suddenly when they say, hey, look at this, they're actually doing something that you have no idea how they did that. Right? And you find yourself going and watching them do things that you did not know they had in them. And things change. It's remarkable. You're going, you, you sit and watch soccer practices. Because it's just, your heart's alive when, when their heart's alive. Or you go to plays and you go, how do they remember all these lines? Or they learn things that you just, you don't even know that's really a thing. And you think, wow, they can do that. Something to remember about the letter to Philadelphia, there's no correction here. Jesus dictates a letter and corrects nothing about them. Doesn't mean they're perfect, but something about what they had done caught his eye. And he's like, oh, look what they're doing. That's remarkable. This isn't like the parachute from a trash bag thing they were doing earlier. They are beginning to grow and exhibit strength and develop. When we think of the things that catch Jesus' eye, we tend to think of heroic actions and spectacular deeds. What Jesus was amazingly caught up when with the church of Philadelphia is they had been faithful. That was it. Because you guys have been so faithful, I'm not even going to mention the things that you probably do need correction for. Because you being faithful has stirred my heart so much. The highest worship that you can offer the Lord is to not change your opinion of him when things go haywire. To not adjust your theology to match your experience or to downgrade what you think about him because things ended up differently. To remain faithful to his name. It's the highest praise you can give. I have been in worship services where I wondered if the roof was going to come off, okay? Where everyone is just caught up and worshiping and the Lord sees that and he's like, eh, the parachute thing. It's cute. He likes it. But he also knows that we really like those songs and there's people at the Sprint Center acting very much the similar thing for a secular audience. He likes it. It's not that it doesn't matter, but it's not like a family who's been faithful for 20 years. It's, it's not like people who just put their foot one in front of the other and keep doing what he's called them to do and not deny his name. I want to ask if Zion and the worship team would come back. Almost three years ago now, we met Chris and Julie Bennett. They were pastoring the Antioch Church in Norman, Oklahoma. Shortly after we met them, they relocated to Los Angeles and were ministering to those in the entertainment industry. We've got four kids, three teenage sons and a younger daughter. And uh, not long after they got to Los Angeles, they discovered that Julie had cancer. Stage three. They fought hard. And she beat it. And then it came back. Stage three, maybe stage four, they think. And she battled and battled and battled. She actually beat it a second time. Late in her battle, that second battle with cancer, she posted something on Facebook. I actually went back and, and found the video last night and watched it. it was, and uh, Julie's normally slender, but after two battles with cancer, she's, she's just tiny. She's got a little beanie on because her beautiful black curls are gone. And she sits at a piano and she says in a voice that is hoarse from the medication, this is the only song I can sing right now. 
and she sings, I surrender all. All to Jesus, I surrender, I surrender all. I promise you, in that moment, what she did not have to do was say, hey, Dad, look at this. Hey, hey, God, I'm over here. I'm in the beanie. I've been battered, but I'm playing. I think he looked at that. I have a hunch that might have been the most beautiful song he heard that night because she had been faithful no matter what. The amazing part is the opportunity to be faithful presents itself to every one of us every day. What a great opportunity for us to be faithful through everything. You live a faithful life. You get to the end of your life, the one who is true, who opens doors that you could never open, shuts doors you could never shut. He looks down, he goes, let me write you a love letter. There's no correction in it because you've been faithful. Stand with me, will you? I just want to take a few minutes. We've been kind of altering our services to give ourselves some space at the end here. And I just want to, in song, commit ourselves to faithfulness, come what may. Maybe some of you have been struggling. You're like, I didn't even know he was watching. He's watching. He sees what you're doing. He sees that you have fought to keep your heart pure. He sees that you have changed the tone of conversations that could have gone bad if you said the fullness of what was in your mind. He sees how you have been faithful, and he knows. So, Father, as we worship here at the close of our service, would you, would you speak to people about the faithfulness in their heart? Touch him, Jesus. Just worship him.